This is my ship. And welcome to Spacefall, a Black 7 podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. And this week we are talking about Series C, Episode 2, Power Play. Picking up directly from Aftermath, which we covered last episode. Again, written by Terry Nation, directed by David Maloney. I'm sure mm. we'll talk about that. First broadcast on the 14th of January, 1980. The ratings, pretty steady, 9.4 million. Barely a change from the 9.5 of the last week. Yeah, yeah. Very good. So the background for this one, look, obviously it's written by Terry Nation and we are still in that scenario where Terry is uh, writing the resolution to Series B and setting up what's going to happen in the next season. This is the second of three scripts he'll write this series, but uh, we'll get to the third one of those in due course. Yes. But getting into it, Dave, what are your initial thoughts? So as we walked into Series 3, I fully expected that I was going to enjoy this one more than I enjoyed Aftermath. As I said last week, whilst I don't think Aftermath is an out-and-out classic, it did go up in my Mm. expectation watching it again. And I think that the couple of sort of dodgy moments that sit in the memory had held back my view of it. Did Power Play go up or down in my estimation? Both. Mm. We're going to talk about this in a couple of segments. In one of it, my estimation went up. In another, my estimation went down. Overall, look, it's a pretty enjoyable runaround episode. It's another one that's not a classic, but there's a lot to enjoy. But it is a mixed bag. Yes, I would agree with that. Much as you, some of it was better than I remember. Some of it probably wasn't quite as good. It is one quite strong plot and two, well, sort of one and a bit, <laughs> uh, weaker ones, which are less good, obviously. It almost feels a bit like after doing the big aftermath episode last week with Avon and what have you, Terry Nation sort of suddenly realised he's got an episode to basically tie everything else off and get to where we need to be so we can actually get into the series proper next week because a couple of these threads are pretty perfunctory. (laughs) Yes, there is a certain amount of just plot necessity going on. Pretty much. But look, we'll kick into it. I broke this one down into three threads, which I've called Tarrant, which obviously is the stuff on the Liberator, a thread I've called Callian Servalan, and then a separate thread I've called Villa. So maybe if we start with the Tarrant part of the discussion, or the Liberator part of the discussion, the first thing we see, and really unusually for Blake 7, it's a cliffhanger. It's a cliffhanger, and therefore the resolution of the cliffhanger, which has been completely reshot, <laughs> so as to allow Avon's instant reaction, which did not happen <laughs> at the end of Aftermath, yes. and, and actually becomes essential to the plot. Summary execution is the usual punishment for boarding a Federation ship without authority. What are you doing on my ship? Your ship. That's right. There is a lot of suspicion and people trying to work each other out in these initial scenes. Avon obviously quickly works out he's potentially in quite a deal of trouble. So, of course, he's quite keen to hide his identity. Dana 
very quickly cottons on to what he's trying to do. And I made a note here, given this is only Dana's second episode, it actually gives her a lot of credibility and mm. shows she's got quite a bit of sort of street smarts. Now, yeah. That she does cotton on to what Avon's doing really, really well. Yep. So that works well on the scene. Plus, we also set up the whole dynamics between Tarrant and Clegg. Yes. Our, particularly the bit where they're all very sort of following Tarrant and doing what Tarrant says. And even while Clegg's introducing himself, I'm section leader Clegg, and they're just walking out of the room. <laughs> quite clever actually. Clegg is obviously immediately suspicious of Avon and Dana but he doesn't really quite trust Tarrant either. He acknowledges Tarrant's rank makes him superior. He also has the thing clearly where he's a bit worried that Tarrant's just going to pull rank and take credit for finding the ship. You'll find section leader Clegg doubts everything. He even questions my superior rank. I accept that your rank places you in authority sir but my reports will show that my men and I boarded this ship before you. Oh don't worry you'll get all the credit you deserve. We do go through more of that stalling and blocking as we move to the flight deck. And we have that focus on Avon as he realises Terence worked out what's going on with the Liberator and clearly who he, Avon, is likely to be. And the other thing is, as you watch Terence's reactions to Avon spinning his story, mm. it's very clear Terence doesn't believe him for one moment. And in fact, that ties with the fact that we later realise Terence knew straight away he mm. must be a member of the crew. Yep. What's really good, and I think it's a really strong start in terms of his acting from Stephen Pacey, where Avon starts to resist a bit and, you know, I'm very influential, I have certain friends. The look that Terence gives him of just... Stop playing, dude. Like, you're <laughs> fooling no one is really good, but the fact that Tarrant is now playing along with Avon yes. is really clever. I do like the couple of close-ups we get of Avon when he realises, firstly, that he's trapped when they want him to take the voice test, and then secondly, when, like, yeah, I am actually screwed when they want him to walk over and actually speak into the into the box. I note that they don't really seem to be that concerned with Dana. I mean, she clears herself pretty much immediately, but there's no real focus on her. It, it's probably actually good that maybe Avon reaches into his jacket just at the right moment for Tarrant to punch him, but I guess it shows that Tarrant is very quick. He's very quick to take advantage of the situation that gives him the opportunity to capitalise on not having Avon give himself away. And it is another example of, I think, Terry Nation's background in hardball detective mysteries, mm. that this is another one of those plots where all the little bits actually do come together quite yes. well. Yes, and of course, with murder mysteries, we have to set up that everybody potentially has a motive when we all see somebody doing something a bit suspicious, which we will continue to see through the episode. I guess at that moment, look, that probably bit of tension is then diffused when we get Villa coming through on the communicator. But the Federation guys, their attention immediately changes. So what's of interest to me as well at this point is that the Liberator is functioning very differently having mm. been abandoned by the crew to when it was abandoned by the Altar, yes. presumably before Spacefall. Mm. I assume that's because there was enough time for Blake or Avon to give Zen very specific programs, yeah. which would imply that when the Altar left the Liberator, it really was just either everybody was killed or yeah. everybody just abandoned him Abandoned immediately. Yeah. yeah. We do then get some exposition about what the ship is doing as Clegg and Tarrant start investigating Villa's message. When we cut back to Avon and Dana in the cabin, I did actually quite like the moment where Dana said she could have killed everybody. She's really unhappy that she didn't, even after being knocked out. And she even gets that lovely little snarky line, I judge by results and you're not getting it. Yeah. <laughs> I let you down. Let me down? There are only two. I should have been able to kill them both. We all have our off days. Anyway, there were four other guards hanging around. 
I could have dealt with them. I'm sure you could, but it's not all bad. If I had spoken, Zen would have identified me. This way, we've bought ourselves a little more time. How do we use it? To start with, we get out of here. And once we're out? This is my ship. But you note here, Avon does that assertion, this is my ship. Yes, and never mind about Avon asserting himself over Tarrant and Clegg. Avon is asserting himself over Blake already. Yes. He has clearly decided that Star One having been destroyed, this is now his ship. Yes, because his part of the bargain, even though it might not have been by him, <laughs> his part of the bargain technically has been fulfilled. And can also just add in here another piece of credibility for Dana... The fact that when she goes for Clegg, she actually comes very close to killing him. Mm. And it takes Clegg and a couple of troopers to get her off him. And Clegg sort of says, she almost killed me. Mm. Again, Dana looks like a very effective character. Yeah, she does. She could have killed me. She wasn't exactly gentle with me. We now sort of move probably firmly into the murder mystery stages where we get the POV shot of somebody walking up to the guard, who actually is Pat Gorman. Shout out. Yes. <laughs> Avon and Dana then find the murdered guard. I did like the little quip about that being a difficult way to commit suicide. <laughs> but there's also that very weird comment about maybe he was cleaning it and it went off. I actually thought that was a really funny comeback. But <laughs> <laughs> okay. I wasn't quite sure whether it was a funny comeback I'd kind of missed or there was a, a slight difference between the script and the I'm execution. I'm not sure. I, I sort of read it as a comeback. You oh, know, Dana sort of getting the snide comment back in as well. I will say on Fortunately, in that scene, it is probably just a little bit too obvious that Clegg and Tarrant are just waiting out of shot for Dana and Avon to leave before they come running in. On the other hand, there's some very good direction in the next scene where it's now very clear that Tarrant has worked out Avon's plan. Yes. And Tarrant is now playing a game. We don't yet know what it is. But clearly he is not working with Clegg. No, he's got a whole other agenda that he doesn't reveal. And it's done just with direction. Yep. Another one of the extras is killed off at another POV shot as somebody walks up to the guy guarding the floor panel. Setting up the guy in the inspection channel to be murdered by Clegg is quite nasty. <laughs> you note again, Tarrant uses that opportunity to reinforce really his dominance over Clegg. That Clegg is getting jumpy, Clegg fired the gun off too soon. But it's okay, I'll put in the report that makes it look good. We also again get that mystery series trope where all the evidence is put in plain sight. Mm. If you follow Tarrant's movements across this part of the episode, he's very clearly in the right spot to kill the right guard every time. And Maloney, as director, does put that front and centre. So as an audience that doesn't cheat, you can work out what's going on yes, based on the evidence. because if you look at the blocking a lot of the shots, you know, it'll be the Federation guys and Tarrant will walk up to them. Yes. Or, or he'll send them off and Tarrant will walk off in the opposite direction. Yeah, Tarrant has been somewhere else or come yes. something. Yeah, it does all work. It doesn't cheat, which I'm, I have a lot of respect for. We then move on to the bit where they're trying to stay hidden by launching the life capsule. I know Avon doesn't really seem to consider the idea that one of the Federation troops might have a hidden agenda. He seems to think, oh, maybe there's a grudge or there's actually somebody else on the ship that they don't know about, which ultimately is revealed to be wrong. I don't know whether that's sort of to try and throw in another red herring, perhaps that there is something else going on. Yeah, that's true. I think having put all the evidence in plain sight, the other trope is you do put a couple of false directions Mm. in there, which, again, are reasonable false directions, so it's not a cheat. No. The next one, planting more evidence, is we have the scene where Harmon walks out of the vault 
very obviously weighing the bag up and whatever before he walks off. This is really just to keep the mystery going. Unfortunately, and we'll mention here perhaps the compilation tape, Yep. it was a lot of those little things that were cut out of that, mm. and I'm fairly sure the Harmon scene was one yep. of the things that was lost. Not a lot of stuff lost in this episode, but certainly a lot of those little scenes, a lot of trims were taken through. We're now sort of moving into the latter part, probably, of the storyline. We get the exposition moment where Avon starts to find out what's happened to the other members of the crew. Yep, we do confirm that Blake and Jenna are still alive. Yes, and obviously that Villa is being given the highest priority because he is apparently in grave danger. Now, that's (laughs) played for comedy, but if you were somebody who was actually in grave danger, Hmm. you would be a little bit annoyed that Villa had taken priority (laughs) because he was the scaredest. Yes, that's right. I guess they do sort of subvert that in a way that we haven't heard from Callie, but Blake is safe and he's on a transport. Jenna is safe and she requests her pickup be given low priority. But yeah, I think having Villa come through, I'm scared, just talk to me, please, <laughs> would be quite off-putting. Come on, Zed. Say something, will you? Look, I'm in bad trouble. I need help. Look. Computer's responding again. Look, it's very lonely where I am. Wherever it is. I'm cold, and I'm miserable, and I'm hurt, and I'm hungry. Instruments are registering a change of course. The ship's locking onto the signal. Well, you're right. It is one of Blake's people. And we're heading towards him. I'm being reasonable. All I ask is that you let me know you're getting my signal. I don't want a long conversation. I'm not interested in the latest news. Just confirm that you hear me. Come in. We are now really moving into the latter part of the episode. Dana is captured pretty much immediately, which shows Clegg's guys must be pretty effective because she was actually sitting on the bed pointing the gun at the door when we left her. So Yeah, I actually made the point that although Clegg is very much the second tier of this story compared to Tarrant, he is actually a very credible baddie. Mm. He is shown to be effective. He is shown to be ruthless. At this point, he has worked out exactly where he needs to be he's worked out the teleport bay he's the strategic key point of the ship and he's actually in control at this point and looks as though he has the upper hand Hmm. we go into detective mystery mode where tarrant works through his deductions and how he's pieced together who avon is and really what avon's been doing and how tarrant wasn't fooled by some of the things that avon's done to try and keep him off his back but then you did have the advantage of local knowledge didn't you avon my name your is... name is avon how did you know when we first came face to face i said what are you doing on my ship there were a dozen ways you could have answered but you said your ship an innocent stranger wouldn't question who was in command yeah, I made a few notes at this point. Firstly, Avon does physically lose the fight with Harmon. Yep. Avon actually, obviously, is quite weak at this point. Mm. He's been through the various battles. He's been in yep. the life capsule. He's been through all the drama on Saren. And he's now got to have a fight, which he loses. But it allows Tarrant to save him, yep. which is a moment of credibility for Tarrant. I do particularly like that Avon is very, very annoyed at himself that he had not worked it out. Yes, he is, because he then gets to spell out what he thinks is going on, which is proven to be wrong. Yes. Yes, and here is that sort of damn moment. (laughs) (laughs) Now, can we talk at this point about Tarrant? Yes. He gives an explanation about who he is that seems superficially to be reasonable, Mm. but the more you look into it, it actually doesn't make a lot of sense and has a lot of very weaselly phrases in there. The phrase particularly... I trained as a Federation space captain, so it wasn't too difficult. 
that's a very open-ended phrase that could mean a lot of things. Yes. It could mean I did a few weeks and then dropped out. It could mean I aced the course and served as a Federation captain. And it's left very, very open. And I think this is something that we're going to see explored. And it's only because of the desperation of the scenario right now and that Clegg has got the upper hand mm. that Avon really can't afford to probe this at the moment. And the fact that Taron has just killed Harmon means, well, look, I don't know who this guy is and whose side he's going to be on long term, but for the next 10 minutes, he's on my side. Yes, very much so. If you work through Taron's backstory, you're right. Is he a deserter? Is he somebody who's just decided that the war maybe gives him an opportunity for a career change? He gets onto this magnificent spaceship and thinks, well, screw the Federation. Um, I want the ship. Or had he abandoned the Federation sometime and he really was just running yeah, contraband? Or guns or whatever it was, yeah. I've been on the Federation wanted list for quite a while. I had my own ship. I was running contraband, getting myself mixed up in other people's wars, you know, the sort of thing. Naturally, I heard something of what Blake and the rest of you were doing. We tried not to keep it a secret. How did you get here? Like you, I went in against the aliens. Unlike you, I barely survived the first salvo. I was picked up by a Federation ship. That's how I came by the uniform. When she was hit and we abandoned, my life capsule homed in on the Liberator. Unfortunately, while this is going on, we do have another trope, which is the non-soundproof door <laughs> uh, with the card listing outside, which obviously then brings us really to the final showdown and hit the other, what I think is generally referred to as the idiot ball trope of uh, Clegg giving them five minutes, i.e. just long enough to come up with a, a plan. But... but again, there's a lot to love in that. I do think, again, Dana, although she's been captured, gets to retain a sense of credibility because you do get... She will die slowly and very noisily. Don't count on it. And there is that moment also where Avon does outline his plan, you know, and Clegg does a, ooh, I wouldn't like you for a friend. Now, that's really interesting. First of all, Tarrant has the line, you'd better come up with something fast. So there's already that dynamic growing between mm. the two of them as to who's going to get who out of the situation. Now... I hadn't really realised this until I watched it for this podcast. I did kind of realise that if Avon's plan went the other way and Tarrant did end up getting killed by Clegg, Avon was like, well, oh well. It's it's win-win, really. It's win-win for Avon, yes. It is, yeah. And Avon sort of sells it by saying, no, Dana, I don't have any other alternative when she starts pushing back that don't do it. I did have to call out probably... The bit where Dana strangles Clegg, and it's very staged strangulation, you know, yes. sort of a few seconds of arm lock and then releasing his dead, while Avon and Tarrant just sit there and assess her performance. She's very good. Promising. Quite promising. I've got a mixed view on that. The actual shot of them just standing mm. back, sort of arms crossed, going, oh, very good. That look is very good. The, the comma they make afterwards is quite condescending. Yes. The other point I had actually just watching this scene and how it's blocked out, the two guards that they initially punch when they spring the trap, they clearly then just either murder them or something <laughs> afterwards, I'm guessing. But Maybe they teleport them down to the planet. Maybe they do. <laughs> we are now really pretty much at the end of the episode, or close to. Avon, Tarrant and Dana are now in control of the ship, but we'll see what happens after that a little later in the episode. Now, 
our second plot thread I had, and I'll do this one, I think, first, because it's probably the most perfunctory of the three and is really just designed to get Callie and Serverland to where they need to be by the end of the episode. But it is the Callie and Serverland thread. We learn Callie has been picked up by the Chengen ship and pulled out of her life capsule with bad burns and what have you, and she's now en route to the planet Chenga, which is outside the Federation. And we go through that initial exposition of the ship and what they're doing and how they're picking up survivors. Now, there are some good and bad points in this little thing in terms of getting the plot to all work. Yep. They do land to pick up a survivor who we know turns out to be Serverland. One of the negatives is that the model work of that bears absolutely no relation whatsoever <laughs> to the filming location for Aftermath. Yeah, I had that note as well. I will say it's a pretty good model shot. It's a very good model shot. It's just nothing it like just the doesn't be- look anything like anything the beach like and the beach Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so some of the things that I'll look at here, it's implied that Kelly's life capsule was found in space. Yep. Yep, fair enough. I'll go with that. I will say that I'm willing to say it's not a plot convenience that the locations of Avon and Kelly and Villa are all within close distance of each other because they did all leave the same point at the same time. Yes, within a few minutes of each other, yes. So I'm I'm willing to say that that makes sense. The thing that's maybe a little bit of a cheat is that the little hospital ship gets from where they are to Saren to Chenga in less time (laughs) than the Liberator does. You can just about get away with it by saying the Liberator is diverting a lot of power to the order repairs. Yep. He's probably doing substandard speed, so maybe the hospital ship is functioning yep. and it zips along a little bit faster. Oh, yeah, tough, but I'll maybe. get that. I did question, given we know Callie's intended fate, why they bother to heal her. Yes, I had that note too, actually. Um, if you're going to harvest organs, do you really care if the skin is a little bit burned? <laughs> and look, we've talked about how well the murder mystery plot tropes were played out in the other arc in this one i think some of those sort of sci-fi tropes are played very badly and the nurse being really nice and really good and Mm. everything is just a huge red flag to the audience something's up here she shuts callie down as soon as she starts asking too many difficult questions if you go through and it's probably more prevalent perhaps in the villa plot but if you go through a lot of the chengen's dialogue it's very precisely written Mm. Um, around how you're going to make you know invaluable contributions to our society, etc. I did actually make a note, and we'll come back to this in the next thread, that they say it just a little bit too often, mm. in my view. Yeah. Of course, yes, our survivor is found to be Serverland, who gets onto the ship and immediately starts trying to assert her authority. <laughs> <laughs> and interestingly, by this point, the destruction of Star One seems to be common knowledge. Yes. From the reports I've heard, the Federation is finished. You lost control when Star One was destroyed. After a war of that scale, there was bound to be some disruption. But things will be under control again very soon. Don't ever doubt it. You and Blake and all the other traitors from the Liberator will be dealt with. But don't you understand? It's over. You're finished. You don't have power anymore. You think not. But Servalane obviously is not prepared to go quietly, having done everything she's done to get herself into that position she's not going away without a fight and i do like the fact that the frontline hospital staff are just like sorry we're busy we've got another job yeah. not our department doesn't want to talk to serverland the moment she gets a bureaucrat yes suddenly her authority actually works. <laughs> come here my name is serverland i want to see a senior official immediately 
I'm afraid that won't be possible. I am president and supreme commander of the Terran Federation. I want to see a senior official. I want to see him here, and I want to see him now. Probably the last night I had here, and look, it is used as the moment where Servaland works out that it's Callie she's on the ship with. It's interesting that it's Villa Callie is connecting with. I took it sort of she's felt his pain before, perhaps. You know, she's maybe been trying to reach okay. out to the crew telepathically, and Villa's, because he's in pain and he's frightened. And, and that transmits more strongly than other Yes, things, and, yeah. you know, when he has his arm set, she suddenly gets that sharp stab of pain. So maybe that's why it's him perhaps that she's feeling, so to speak. We are really now getting to the point where these two threads start to intersect. So we'll carry this on in the next thread. Now, Villa, of course... He's not just going to Chenga, he's already there. He's already there. I, again, will highlight, as I did in the last episode, we are not on Planet Quarry. No. And the filming location is a lot better for it. It is, actually. That was really quite impressive, that place. Villa obviously has the broken arm, although I know he's managed to set a fire, so he's clearly not that disabled. I'm just going to come out and say, look, I found the stuff with him pretending to be part of a well-armed platoon to be kind of embarrassing. There's something moving out there, men. Keep your weapons ready. Yes, sir. Now, don't be nervous, men. There are ten of us. And all heavily armed. I just hope that whoever's out there has the good sense to leave us alone. I would make the point it's maybe somewhat in character. We have seen him talking to himself, trying to reassure himself when he's been alone and frightened before in Bounty, where he has to go down and check the teleport bay. Yeah, I didn't mind it. I think the fact that he has got himself together, set a fire, does show that he's not completely useless. No. And I did sort of like the whole thing, well, look, I'm physically harmed, I've only got the one weapon, so I might as well try and bluff. Mm. Is a good idea. Does Keating play it as strongly and forcefully as the script perhaps intended? Maybe not. No. Unfortunately, it's undermined by the absolute gullibility of Villa. Well, what happens next, yeah. yeah. One thing we have said about Michael Keating's performance before, he does scared very well. Yes. And that really does come across, you know, Villa's really traumatised and frightened and just wants any sort of security. And if we do run with the headcanon that we have over the last few episodes, that the gap between Star 1 and Aftermath is reasonable, and there actually is quite a number of engagements going on Mm. there, Villa has potentially been living in a war-type situation for some time. He's then gone in a life capsule, which I'm sure isn't a very pleasant experience, crashed on a planet, now alone. So I do accept that he's probably at a very low point. That sort of stress of the last few weeks is really starting to show on him. Yeah. I did like the fact that as soon as Lom turns up, he just punches through the charade immediately. Yes. (laughs) I did think that was quite a clever touch. Given what we see with the hunters and that as they're moving around, Lom's camp is clearly very, very well hidden that they haven't just been rounded up. And the discussion here as we introduce Lom is, again, that things clearly aren't quite right. There's something else clearly going on. Yeah, there's lots of talk about they're after us. There's an us and them thing going on there. 
Yeah, yeah, look, it's set up reasonably well. And look, particularly once Villa does meet the high techs, there's a very clever little directoral crossfade between now at last I know I'm safe and may his soul rest in peace. Yes, probably jumping ahead a little bit, but I did think that little coda from Lom very much sold the idea that Villa is really in trouble. Yeah, I think so. I can only tell you that after all I've been through, it's nice to know I'm safe at last. The high techs got him. So, rest in peace. The other note I did have for Blom and his friend is Maul is very clearly not being paid for a speaking part. <laughs> and I have to say, actually, seeing Blom be shot in the face with the dart was a little bit nasty too. A lot of other sci-fi would have done it in the arm or the you know elsewhere, but that was very effective. I did find all the stuff afterwards with Z and Bar far less effective. They're very clearly playing it with a strong nudge-nudge-wink-wink to the yes. audience. There is just one too many iterations of, you'll be making a contribution yes. to society, nudge-nudge-wink-wink. Yeah. yeah, I really don't think the writing here for Villa is that good at all. We know from previous stories that he's clearly very intelligent. He obviously is a bit of a coward, and he's got a very strong survival streak. But really, that just total lack of judgment and gullibility. Now, I guess, again, putting the head cannon on it, as we discussed, he's stressed, he's hurt. These are two pretty girls who are offering him food and, and yeah. security. He has a very low pain threshold. Yes. So he really just latches onto them, and it's all about, I just want to thank you again about how wonderful you've been. Yes, and the way that Villa overplays that mm. is itself not very good when it's put on top of the really obvious unsubtle hint dropping yes. of the high techs it all just comes together and makes him look really really dumb it's very hard to that villa you see in say breakdown where he very clearly works out Kane's up to something yes that's not the villa you see here basically no he's, he's not nearly street smart here I will note, though, that as they're handing Villa off to the hospital, the matching between the models, the exterior filming, yep. and the set filming has actually been done really well. Yes. I suppose just prior to that, look, we've had the info dump on the history for Chenga. I don't know whether that's more for Villa's benefit than anything else. I sort of got that constant complimenting and whatever from Villa is maybe just trying to sledgehammer that home to the audience that they're setting him up for something bad. I don't... Yeah, uh, I think or, sledgehammer is the right word. There. Yeah, or whether it's just... They just need to fill another page of dialogue, so we'll just I'll chuck a bit more in for Villa, perhaps. I, I don't know. It is sledgehammer subtle. Yeah, it is. But, of course, he gets inside the base and, hey, look, Callie's here too. <laughs> <laughs> Callie obviously is far more suspicious of what's going on around her, and it's all maybe just a fraction too perfect. Villa continues his... Oh, I'm just happy to be somewhere safe, and I might stay here, you know, raise a family, and... <laughs> Sort of, please. Yeah, it's a little bit tiresome by that point. It, it really is a case of probably just pad, pad, pad until we're ready to teleport them, basically. But um... Yeah, and look, they are now at this point trying to raise the tension in that you've got the stuff going on with who's going to control the Liberator, yep. and you've got to build up the tension. Will the Liberator get to Chengang in time to teleport mm. Villa and Kelly, or will they be yes. terminated by the switch? <laughs> I mean, they're obviously trying to build that up. And look, it's TV. We Official. know that it's going to work out that way. But you can see they're trying to get the two plots to reach 
the climax at the same uh, time. Of course. The last little bit here is, as you said earlier, Servalan has arrived on Chang'e as well, and as you said, when she gets someone with a little bit more authority, it is very much a case of, you will bring a senior administrator now. Yes. Which is interesting because it actually, by extension, then implies that not only does the Federation still carry some weight, but there are actually people in the Federation who are prepared to accept her leadership and offer her loyalty in that. Now, whether it's Durkin uh, making good on his promise. To, um, Look, I mean, at this point, I suspect that most people don't quite know what the situation is mm. with the Federation. And if somebody comes along and says, look, I'm in this authority and I can deliver you these goods. Yep. And, and presumably the deal is one of those deals where the Chengans ask for a lot extra to yes. sort of buffer them as, you know, to make it worth their while just in case it's not true. I found that reasonably believable. And mm. there would certainly be enough pursuit ships out there that would say, well, she's the Supreme Commander, I guess we keep going. Yep, we're still loyal. Yep. Yeah. We do then get the somewhat gloating farewell. And this really is the point where the truth of Chang'e or, or the slaughterhouse is revealed. Unofficially, the staff call this place the slaughterhouse. It's an organ bank. They store living tissue, all the vital organs for spare part surgery. I can't move. Callie, I can't move. Don't be too alarmed. It's all quite painless and humane. I understand. And it's another of those examples, although it's not stated overtly in the script, but it does remind me of Freedom City in Gambit, Mm. where this is a service that the Federation would not condone themselves, but having it available just outside their space is very convenient, and therefore blind eyes are turned. Yes, considering there are probably any number of Federation citizens who might need their services. Exactly. So I I do think that that was quite a nice little example of where the Federation turns a blind eye Mm. in return for certain services. Yep. Just to tie this straight off, of course Villa and Callie are rescued just at the vital moment before they're extinguished. And we now have five people on board the Liberator. Yes, which I guess leads us to the final scene of the episode, which probably shows some quite interesting material, but then unfortunately lets it down with that sort of Scooby-Doo, let's end on a joke type ending. Because we start with Dana and Tarrant being given access to Zen and that their commands will control the Liberator as well as the three regulars. Which is a very clear indication to the audience these people are part of the crew now. Yeah, so they're, they're going to be around for a while, which you probably get for Dana because, look, she saved Avon's life. She's shown she's obviously trustworthy and whatever. Tarrant is the more interesting one because really, as we sort of highlighted earlier, you still don't really know where Tarrant's loyalties lie. Yes, I mean, Tarrant has proved his worth by killing Harmon, helping them kill Clegg. But how do you know he's just not going to gun the rest of the crew down and take off with the ship? That's right, and you you wonder what the calculation is there, and is it, Mm. in some sense, well, he's here now, he seems to be on our side, we'll watch him, and the fact that they've had to give Dana control of the ship, they couldn't really not give it to Tarrant. No. And maybe Dana's presence inadvertently forced Avon's hand. Yeah. I am jumping into the production notes, but apparently Paul Darrow himself wasn't that happy with that part of the script as he felt 
particularly giving Taran access to the ship, was really setting Taran up to do something bad. Apparently, his way of sort of coming to terms with it was that he felt Avon would probably just kill them if they got in the way. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's kind of what I was sort of saying. Avon's like, well, I have to do this, but... I'm ready to kill him and I'll watch out Yeah, it does sort of smack of, look, we really just want to tie up all of those threads before we get to the next episode. Yeah, look, which is just a reality. In yeah. terms of the dialogue here, I must admit it's a shame they end as they do because Avon's little line about Villa whilst he's yes. unconscious. This one is Villa. I should really introduce him now. He's at his best when he's unconscious. That's actually quite a neat little line. His joke to end the episode, as you said, is very forced, very Scooby-Doo, and I actually think that as, in fact, was the end on the compilation tape, or at least where they merged to go into the next mm. story, Welcome to the Liberator. My name is Dana. Dana Mellonby. Now you. I am Del Tarrant. Register the voices, Zen. From now on, you will obey their requests and commands. Confirmed. Welcome to the Liberator. And you are welcome to it. Oh? Given the choice, would you rather be a load of spare parts down there? Or one spare part up here. But we are now at the point we have a workable crew on the ship. We've seen off the Federation. And now it's on to presumably looking for Blake and Jenna. Yes, absolutely. Blake and Jenna are now the pieces of the puzzle we still don't have. Mm. In terms of general comments, I've just got a quick one before we go to production yep. notes. And this is one occasion where I really want to highlight Dudley Simpson's incidental music on this one. Mm-hmm. He does some very different stuff here with some very good flute-based music. Yep. And it's just a bit different than what he's done before. So that was a highlight for me. Cool. I've probably only got a couple of production notes. The exterior scenes of Villa on Chenga were apparently the first scenes filmed for the season. Okay. So they do that location filming and then go and do the studio stuff. Yep. Powerplay was also the first episode recorded when they went into the studio. We mentioned at the top that David Maloney directed this one uncredited. He actually went and asked for permission to direct it because he felt because they had two new cast members, it would be good for them to be directed in their first episode by somebody who was familiar with the show. But of course, again, due to those BBC regulations, no credit. Fair enough. Yeah. Otherwise, on to our regular segments. First of our regular segments, as always, is guest cast. I do have to note, we don't have a rump hole link again this episode, so look, maybe this is no longer a trope. And there might be a trope coming in to replace it as yes, we go through this we'll cast. see. We'll see. We have got a fairly big guest cast this time, so look, we probably aren't going to do any of these people real justice, but we'll see how we go. We will, and look, the one that's very hard to not do justice to is, of course, Michael Sheard, yes. who turns up as section leader Clegg. He is a massive veteran of British TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, no real starring roles, but just he's that guy who's in yep. everything. In terms of Doctor Who, he has done a phenomenal number. He was in The Ark with William Hartnell, Mind of Evil with John Pertwee, Pyramids of Mars and Invisible Enemy yes. with Tom Baker, Castrovalva with Peter Davison, and Remembrance of the Daleks with Sylvester McCoy. <laughs> Uh, He, of course, is quite well known for being in The Empire Strikes Back and getting choked on screen, which is very cool. Yes. Um, His first role was in Suspense in 1962. He did five episodes of Softly Softly in three different roles. Jason King, The Uneden Line. Yep. Colditz, 
six episodes of On the Buses, 13 episodes of Dixon of Doc Green, all in different roles. Yes. Which I think reflects that sort of career that he had. All Creatures Great and Small. Now, I did note here he was in The Tomorrow People playing Hitler. He was in Secret History playing Hitler. Yep. He was in The Dirty Dozen Next Mission playing Hitler. Yes. And he turns up in Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade playing Hitler. Yes, he did. He played Hitler five times across his career, actually. In terms of the Raiders series, he's also in Raiders of the Lost Ark as a Nazi. He's the U-boat commander. Oh, yes. He's only on screen for a second. Yes, he played Hitler five times, as I said. He also played Himmler three times. Yes. And he's also Goering, or a double of Goering. In Hello, Hello. Hello. yes. He is. Yeah, he is probably what would have been called a jobbing actor. Because if you look at a lot of his work, it's not in recurring roles. However, the one recurring role that I think he is most famous for is 92 episodes of Grange Hill as the deputy head, Mr. Bronson, which was a very well-known and very well-regarded character at the time. And the other credit I do have to mention, he turns up in an episode of Press Gang playing Mm. Dr. Clipson in the episode Unexpected. Now, it has been noted that the episode Unexpected is Stephen Moffat's... uh, loving tribute to uh, Bad Doctor Who. (laughs) And it has been noted that if you're doing a tribute to Doctor Who, having Michael Sheard turned up just adds credibility. Exactly. The only other one you could have got was Philip Maddock. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. But look, yeah, a lot of experience, and he's very good here. Uh, That's good. We move on from there to John Hollis, who obviously was Lom. He, in genre terms, is known for quite a bit of stuff. Look, probably most obviously as... Lando's aide or Lobot depending on which version of Empire you watch and and what's stated in the credits he's also in the Day of the Triffids TV series he's in Flash Gordon he's in Superman Superman 2 and Superman 4 all as different characters he's also in A for Andromeda and the Andromeda Breakthrough right back in the 1960s yes yeah look a couple of notes I had on John Hollis his credits go back to 1958 he was Dr. Klaus in six episodes of Jerry Halliday, four episodes of The Avengers. He, of course, we have to mention his Doctor Who credit as Professor Sondergaard in The Mutants. He was also in The Oneidan Line. He was also in The Tomorrow People. And for those of us who were kids in the 1980s, he was in several episodes of the Teabag franchise, right. which I do remember him from as a kid. A couple of credits that sort of stood out for me. For James Bond fans, he's in Casino Royale, the original one. But more interestingly, he's also in For Your Eyes Only. Now, we don't actually see his face on screen, but he's meant to be Blofeld. Right. Because you see him there stroking the cat. He's just, um, just a bald head from behind. Yes, and cat. it's lots yeah. of shots from behind. It cuts away before we actually get a clear look at his face, etc. For anyone who doesn't know, he's the guy at the start of the movie who tries to kill Bond with the helicopter and eventually gets picked up by the chopper and dropped down the chimney. Right. But yes, that's uh, that's John Hollis. A quick one we need to mention is Doyne Bird, who played Harmon. Yep. Not a lot of credits here, but a couple that I did note there were Peak Practice and The Bill. This is pretty much, I think, his first role, or, or close to. He hasn't obviously got a big role here. He went on to work in TV and on stage until well into the 2000s. Yes, but mostly on stage. Yes. And another quick mention of Michael Crane, who played Mal. He was... In Doctor Who, in the Monster of Peladon, yes. playing Blore, another non-speaking part, and was an extra in Genesis of the Daleks. Yes. He worked as an extra and sort of background player. I think he's best known, obviously, for his size, which made him quite useful, I think, to casting people looking for that sort of statuesque yes. character. Yes, he does turn up in an episode of The Two Runnies, mm-hmm. and he was also in the Oneidan Line. Another one in the Oneidan Line. Which brings us to all the Chengen cast. Richard, yep. do you want to get us started? 
Yeah, we'll probably do the easy one first, which is Julia Vidler as Bar. See Project Avalon. Yes, indeed. She is returning from Project Avalon, and we did talk about her there. Primi Townsend plays her colleague Z, another person who turned up in Grange Hill. She played Miss Brooking in a few episodes. She was in The Children and It, Minder, 12 episodes of World's End, and she was in Doctor Who as well, playing Moolah in The Pirate, Pirate Planet. A very memorable performance. Yes. She's also in 1990, which is a late 70s drama focusing on the dystopian future Britain that's turned into a police state. She's in Zedcar, she's in Bergerac. She was actually also in a stage production of Educating Rita opposite Gareth Thomas in the early 1980s. Quite a bit of stage work, quite a bit of voiceover work as well. She now lives in the United States. Catherine Chase plays the nurse. She was in Minder, she was in Running Scared, and had a recurring role in The Growing Pains of PC Penrose. Yeah, she um, unfortunately doesn't seem to have had a very long career. She's in a few roles sort of from the 70s. I did note, actually looking through her IMDb profile, there are a couple of credits in there like the Frisco Kid that I don't think are actually her when you dig a bit deeper. Right. So I'd say there is obviously a US actress called Catherine Chase, and she is also in a few stage productions as well, though, in her career. And finally, Helen Black, who plays the receptionist with yep. about two lines. Now, I did see her recently as I was re-watching The Secret Army. Yes. Again, to be Doctor Who completist, she is Fabian in The Twin Dilemma, who gets the, the infamous line about may my bones rot. And he's also the voice of the computer in The Deadly Assassin. That's right. She was in Tenko, which was a very mm-hmm. well-regarded series. It was. And more recently in Law and Order UK. Again, she was working until well into the 20 teens. She's also got appearances in Sorry, which was a quite well-known Ronnie Corbett sitcom. She's also in The Bill. She's in Waking the Dead. She's also in Holding the Fort. Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs) Which maybe isn't her finest moment, but she also has a fairly long body of stage work. And finally, just to round out this segment, I'm just going to quick shout out for Max Faulkner, who is the guard listening outside the door. Oh, okay. Um, And he's also one of the two knocked out in the final confrontation. He is quite a well-known background player and stuntman. He's in a long list of TV series and films from sort of the mid-50s onwards. Because we love the Doctor Who references here, he is in numerous Doctor Who episodes, probably most notably as Corporal Adams in The Android Invasion, the bloke who goes over the cliff at the start. Yes. He's also Nesbin in The Invasion of Time. He's also, probably notably, he's the guy on the guardhouse checkpoint in Ambassadors of Death that gets yes, killed by course. the ambassador grabbing the barrier. And then turns up as random soldier two episodes later. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and of course we mentioned Pat Gorman. We did indeed. Another Doctor Who stalled. Yes, and Blake Seven. Yes. We move on from here to, look, it was the 1980s. So a couple of points that I wanted to make here. We highlighted the fact that the model work is very 1980s and it yep. doesn't match the outdoors, which is again, I think, a reality of the fact that a lot of these episodes were quite siloed in their production mm. and there wouldn't have been that crossover. In terms of cultural references, not a lot from me, but I did note that Soylent Green was out in 1973 yeah, okay. and, and was quite a big part of the zeitgeist still at this point. It's a very big cultural touchstone. Soylent Green is people, all the rest of that. And look, it's a tenuous link, but it's the best I could find on this occasion. I had a couple others. Some other commentators have picked up and the similarities between Lom's people turning their back on technology and what have you, and some of the rise in you know, environmental concerns and sustainability and that that you see across the 1970s. That culminates in the good life. Yes, well, you know, but you also see it in things like Barry Letzi or Doctor Who. Doomwatch would have been something that still probably would have been remembered at the time. It had a very advanced of science being potentially bad remit. 
There's also, as you mentioned, the good life, even the goodies. A couple of times they did their ecological focus stories. And, of course, the Wombles. I must admit I don't remember the Wombles, wombles that well. No, I, I remember them, just not well. Yes. The intricacies of Wombles' plot and, <laughs> and story arc are not in my, um, well, the in wombles, my mind. No, well, the, the Wombles really was focused on recycling. They went around Wimbledon Common picking up rubbish and discarded objects and things and turning them into something more useful. Well, that's impressive. We've, we've got from Blake 7 to the Wombles. <laughs> Took us a few steps, but we did get there. <laughs> You also have things like, this is maybe drawing a slightly longer bow, but David Bellamy and his ecological messages, and that would have been quite a popular personality on British TV at the time. We also have, during the 1970s, you get the formation of Greenpeace. As I said, we're probably getting a bit away from this now. One final note I had, still with the Chengans, organ transplants were pioneered in the 1960s, but by the late 70s, when this would have been written, we were seeing much better outcomes for patients who'd been through heart transplants, liver transplants, kidney transplants, etc. Here in Australia, probably the most newsworthy one, I think, was in 1984, when Fiona Coote was Australia's youngest heart transplant recipient. She got a second heart a couple of years later, but has continued to thrive since then. Yeah, and probably not a antecedent for Blake Seven, but something that follows on in that genre, mm. is there's a lot of fiction that sort of goes on and extrapolates where organ transplants going to go. Yes. And particularly the rise of cloning for the purposes of. And look, one example of that that's a very good movie is Never Let Me Go, which is one of the ones that helped Andrew Garfield break out. Okay. Now, the Liberator databank is aptly named this week because mm-hmm. we do get a bit more information about the Liberator itself. Yep. We get an indication that it is a very big ship and mm-hmm. it is the sort of ship that takes a long time to search that you can hide in there, Mm. although I think it's also indicated that the living quarters part that we see is itself not that big. No. Schenger is implicitly called an old Earth colony. It's neutral, it's got a small population, it's a planet of the sci-fi cliche, Um, (laughs) but that's fine. And look, as I discussed during the episode, it's probably a very useful resource for the Federation and another example of how they allow useful regimes to sit on their borders if they can work with them. Yep. Again, as we noted, Blake is safe and well and heading to Ephron and Jenna has received superficial injuries and is on a neutral cargo carrier to the planet Morphenial. Yes, and does not require priority treatment. No. Which brings us now to what happens next. We did discuss Dana and Tarrant being given access to Zen and thus the command functions of the ship at the end of the episode. And as we said, it clearly means they're sticking around for a while. Yes, Servalan is being returned to the Federation and it is certainly her intention to resume the presidency. Yep, as we mentioned just a moment ago, Blake and Jenna are not back on the ship, but Zen knows where they are. Yes, but otherwise I think that life on Chang'e is going to go on sort of how it always has. Pretty much as it is now, I think, yes. Which brings us to what cool lines did Chris Boucher give Avon this week? Now, I actually had the note here. I didn't actually have that many, which maybe reinforces the idea that Chris Boucher wrote most of Avon's lines. Yes, it actually isn't a very Avon dialogue-heavy episode for one where Avon is the lead in the Mm. main plot. I did like the line, though, in response to shoot anybody who comes in. Anyone that isn't me, that is. Yes, I had that one. I did have one here, and it's not an Avon line. Kelly says... I think Avon's alive. And Villa comes back with, he would be. And I also like the fact that when Tarrant was trying to work out which member of the crew Avon was, he says, well, you're not Blake. I would have recognised him. And Avon says, and too intelligent for Villa. To which Tarrant replies, it was an even bet. 
<laughs> which is a very good little exchange. And one final one I will call out, and again, it's not an Avon line, it's actually from Serverland, where she says, I am President and Supreme Commander of the Terran Federation. I want to see a senior official. I want to see him here, and I want to see him now. now. Which is very reminiscent of that line from Withnell and I. We want the finest wines available to humanity. We want them here, and we want them now. <laughs> that leaves only our final segment, which is Player of the Week. Who did you have, Dave? I struggled to pick one this week, because once again, the cast is very good. Yep. I will give honourable mentions once again to Josette Simon, who yep. is establishing the Dana she character is, actually. very well. She really hits the ground running. I think Stephen Pacey did a very good job in his first Yep. story, but not quite enough, I thought, okay. to give him the win. So I'm actually going to give it to David Maloney, okay. who is yep. a very, very capable director. He's very well regarded in Doctor Who fandom for the work he's done a lot of very good stories. Mm. And I think, given the chance to direct here, he actually does a lot of really good stuff. He conveys a lot of the plot points with his direction, the way that he moves between characters the way that he has characters move in and out at the right spot. Yep. All the danger that he's being built up on Chenga is really done by his direction, not by the performances. Yeah. And honestly, sort of let off the leash and given the chance to indulge his first passion, which is directing. Mm. He does a really good job. So, look, lots of really good cast members this time, but I gave it to Maloney. I actually did go with Stephen Pacey because I think, again, like Josette Simon, she doesn't have, obviously, as big a role in this one. But she is proving to be really quite good. But again, I think Stephen Pacey really hits the ground running here. He's very confident and he slots in really, really well. Considering this is one of his first roles, True. I think he gave a really, really good performance and he plays really well off Paul Darrow. Yeah, no, that's very, very true and look very worthy. And I don't mm. disagree with any of that. Yeah. So there we go. That's our discussion of Powerplay. It is. So we will be back next week as we continue, I assume, to find the rest of the crew of the Liberator. Mm -hmm. And that is in episode three of series C, which is in Volcano. Yes. Until then, I've been Dave. I'm Richard. Set course for Obsidian. Thank you for listening to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast, recorded in Australia by David Kitchen and Richard Nolan. If you enjoy our chat, please subscribe and leave a review. We can be contacted by email via spacefallpc at gmail.com. We can also be found online at facebook.com slash spacefallpc and on Twitter at spacefallpc. Richard and Dave also co-host the Goodies Pirate podcast, and Dave co-hosts the Doctor Who show podcast, on which Richard also appears from time to time. We'll be back in a fortnight with more Blake 7. I'd like you as a friend.